What is up, Radical Health Radio family? Today's podcast is all about books. I am going to be sharing with you some of my favorite books. I'll be sharing my favorite quotes from those books, high-level synopsis from those books, how I've been able to take what is in those books and apply it to my life, and sharing that with you because I think there is some wisdom here and what you can find in these books, how you can use it to enhance your life, your mental journey, your self-growth journey, your health journey, your spiritual journey. These have been the best bang for your buck bucks that I could find. I'm sharing everything I learned from them. Let's get into the show. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. Today, we're talking all about books. When we pose this question to our audience in terms of what they want to see from this podcast consistently, every time there is a request to do a podcast about books. What are some good books to read to help with health and mindset and productivity and self-improvement. So today I'm going to attempt to do just that. So books are a huge part of my life. They have helped me grow immensely in many, many areas from the spiritual to the physical, to the financial and to pretty much everything in between. You might've heard it said that readers are leaders. And whilst I'm not convinced that every reader is a leader, I do think that every leader is a reader. And usually what separates you from the smartest person in the room or the most successful could be a lot of things, but often there's going to be a consistent thing, and that thing is the amount of books that they read. Because think about what a book is. It's a transmission of someone's life work, often that they've spent decades, if not longer, studying, learning, implementing, literally giving every ounce of blood, sweat, and tears to, transmitting it through them, and writing it on a tree and then giving you a book. It's a pretty cool process. And we have access to the world's brightest and best minds and their entire lives work at the edge of our fingertips now, you know, reading or listening, because obviously audiobooks are a, a real kind of uh, way to get this information too. However, I will say there is something to me at least special about the physicality of a book, like holding the book in, in your hands. And I have a few quotes today from an author called Naval, who's technically not an author, which is why he doesn't actually make the list because Naval Ravikant has a book out there called The Almanac of Naval, which is actually a compilation of all of Naval's appearances on podcasts and his tweet storms, as he calls them. But it was produced by a different guy called Eric Jorgensen. So it's an unofficial first nod to the book list because he says that listening to books instead of reading them is like drinking your vegetables instead of eating them. Now, of course, we don't really eat or drink many vegetables, but you get the point here that it's not the same thing. Like, I'm not saying don't listen to audiobooks. I'm not saying there's there's no value there. There certainly is, but there you must admit there's something quite special and tangible about holding a book. So where you can in life, especially the books that I'm hopefully going to lay out in this podcast, try to get a physical copy. Try to actually be with the book. Try to hold it. Try to pull out the pen and mark it up and all of that stuff. But yes, Naval, again, has a lot of quotes. And one of the quotes, which is one of my favorites, is to read what you love until you love to read. And the reason that's so important is because I just want you to develop this habit of reading. And a lot of the times people don't know what to read. They think they should just be reading self-development books because some guy in a podcast told them to, or their favorite, you know, celebrity or icon or influencer says, this book is something you've got to read. And maybe they can't quite get into it. So before you do anything and listen to all of these recommendations that I've got, which are just my personal recommendations that have helped me, and I think they might help you, is to firstly read what you love until you love to read. So that might be whatever it is for you. It might be sci-fi novels. It might be Winnie the Pooh. It might be Fifty Shades of Bloody Grey. Whatever gets you going, just to read until you love to read. Because when you love to read, you will read for the sake of reading. And now this whole world opens up to you where you now start to get excited about the next read, excited about the next book. Because to me, reading is to the mind and to the soul what food is to the body. Like it's, it's soul food, it's mind food, it's brain food. And 
for the last 10 years I've been reading books, but I really took my reading up a notch, probably six or seven years ago. And over the course of two or three years, I read about a book a week. So I was averaging like 50 to 54 bucks a year. And I don't say that to impress you. It's actually now I read significantly less than that because I had the luxury of um, not being a parent, not being so busy. So I had extra time to read books. Now it's significantly reduced. Maybe I get through 15 to 20 bucks a year. But the reason I want to highlight that is as the more I was reading, the more I was growing. And there's a very, very linear progression around that. I can look back and see that when I started to prioritize this habit of reading, when I learned to love what reading and, and, and finding books to read, my growth in all areas just skyrocketed. Now, a lot of people will think that they don't have the luxury of time to read a book. They'll say something like, well, I don't have the time. Like life is so busy. And I get that. And that's usually why people will go for things like Audible and audiobooks because they can listen to those on the commute and anything is better than nothing, right? But I want to just challenge you on that a little bit. Based on the average length of the average book, if you read for just 20 minutes per day daily and you protected that habit, just 20 minutes, you would read on average 25 books a year. Okay, so... I think that everybody can give 20 minutes a day to anything that they prioritize. You'll often heard it's said that it, it's not that you don't have time. You have to reframe that and say, it's not a priority for me. And I hope by the end of this podcast, you want to reorganize your priorities a little bit to find the time to read. Because I think that you, plus an extra 20 to 25 bucks a year, is a better version of you. I think that you've got more mental models. I think that you've got more information and inspiration and joy with you plus 20 bucks. But on that point, I will also say this. Don't just read books so you can say you read books to impress people. Beware the trap of mental masturbation. Books remain shelf help and not self help if you don't do anything with the information in those books. Right, We have an adage in our culture that knowledge is power. And I like to push back against that because I don't think that knowledge is power. I think that knowledge is potential. Knowledge is latent power if you do nothing with it. It's great information. But if you just read 20 books a year and actually do nothing with them, then you've just got yourself a case of intellectual obesity. You've filled your brain with all of these cool ideas and concepts from the best minds in the world so you can appear as the smartest person in the coffee shop and brag about how much you read. But unless it's doing something in your life, unless you're actually implementing, taking action on this stuff, then what good is it? So beware that trap. Knowledge isn't power. Knowledge is potential. So yes, read books. Fall in love with the process of reading but focus as well on what you do with that information. How are you gonna turn the information into integration? How are you actually gonna act on it? Because that's when the books go from shelf help to self-help, and we can really get into what we're doing here. So 20 minutes a day is all I'm asking for. And hopefully if you don't, if you're not reading anything right now, then after this podcast, you'll have a couple of books you can throw in your Amazon cart or even better, go find your local bookstore and see if you can find these on the shelves, bring them home with you and get into some reading. So without further ado, let's get into my list. Now, the disclaimer before we do that is these are not the best books in the world. That would be impossible for me to say. Everybody needs a different kind of book at a different time and phase in their life. And I'm, I'm, there'll be some stoicism in today's list. And one of the stoic quotes that I like a lot is that no person steps in the same river twice because they're not the same person and it's not the same river. And why that kind of maps onto reading is that I've tried to read books in the past and they didn't quite hit. And then a year or two later, because I knew there was something in there, I'd come back to it and they really hit. And that's because the river wasn't the same and I wasn't the same. My life had changed, circumstances had changed a little bit and the lesson that was in that book wasn't landing at a certain time but was really landing now. So take this list as just a guide. There are so many books, it's hard to even wrap your head around. When I started to compile this list, I was overwhelmed because I've read hundreds of books and how do you distill it down to the top 10? So again, there is no universal, this is the truth, these are the best books. This is just my opinion. They've really helped me and I think there's something in here that you can have some value with. And of course, we are predominantly a health podcast. So that's where we're going to start. We're going to start with what I would say is the best book on health. And that book is Deep Nutrition by Kate Shanahan. The uh, secondary title to that book is something along the lines of why your body needs ancient foods. 
And Deep Nutrition by Kate Shanahan is a tour de force of everything that we talk about here. It curtails very, very nicely with the animal-based framework. She takes a very ancestrally appropriate, evolutionary appropriate, Western A price slant to things where she maps out everything from breaking down the macronutrients, breaking down the micronutrients, explaining the value and importance of organ meats and meat on the bone and collagen and proline and glycine and the X factor vitamins. She is, I think, largely responsible for this entire movement that we have around seed, seed oils because she maps out the seed oil hypothesis for obesity, essentially, metabolic dysfunction, insulin resistance. Now we've got other characters in this space, like Dr. Paul is doing amazing things to bring awareness to this, but Kate really put it on the map with the research that she lays out in this book. And it's just a monster. It's deep nutrition, and it will help you wrap your head around what nutrition is at a really good level. And it's deep, complex topics, sometimes deep physiology and biochemistry, but in a very digestible way. So I'm going to read a couple of quotes as we go through this from the book that kind of resonated with me and that I've got saved. So Kate says, food is like a language, an unbroken information stream that connects every cell in your body to an aspect of the natural world. The better the source and the more undamaged the message when it arrives to your cells, the better your health will be. I like that a lot because I've been saying for a while that food is information food is like codes, right? These information packets that provide the instructions to your body to either upgrade or downgrade, you know? And we've got a culture that's running around shopping for food like we shop for gas. We're looking for the deals. Cheaper is better. Doesn't really matter, right? It's just all about calories. So throw it down the hatch and earn it and burn it. But when you understand that food is more than that, it's more than just calories, it's information. It's directly programming the way your genes express, what your hormones do, how it affects your hunger and satiety and your rebuilding and your micronutrients. You start to see that we must prioritize high quality food. And Deep Nutrition by Kate Shanahan does an incredible job of laying out exactly how to do that. And if you read that book, I think you'll see a significant overlap with our messaging here. So it's a really good book. It's a big one. It'll take you a while to chew through it, but it's definitely worth it. Now, I have to have some honorable mentions when we talk about health books too, because the book that changed it all for me, it was my matrix moment of the stay asleep and take the blue pill or take the red pill and wake up Morpheus was Mark Sisson's The Primal Blueprint. When I read that book, it was the catalyst for where I am today. And I read that book probably 11, 12 years ago, and it planted the seed of, oh, grains aren't great for humans, and maybe I'll do 30 days without them. And lo and behold, I lost eight pounds, 10 pounds of inflammation, my knees felt better, I stopped farting so much, my skin cleared up, and then I became aware of the seed oil thing, the hidden seed oils in the mayonnaises and the dressings, and you know what that journey is like. Now you just start to pull on the thread and everything unravels. So The Primal Blueprint by Mark Sisson is a phenomenal book. And of course, I've got to give a nod to our, our main man, Dr. Paul Saladino and The Carnivore Code. I think in that book, it's interesting in a way because it does such a phenomenal job of laying out this ancestrally appropriate message. The reason we should prize and honor meat and organs, the reason we shouldn't fear saturated fat and cholesterol, the real root causes of insulin resistance and modern diseases. But also Paul is a guy that's constantly seeking the truth and evolving. And that means that his stance has changed on a few things too. So his, his stance on that book around carbohydrates in general will be different to the modern messaging you hear from Paul, which is actually maybe we shouldn't fear so much the nature provided least toxic digestion friendly plants from fruits and honey and raw milk etc because they are ancestrally appropriate and they provide abundance and nutrition to the body but still we should be wary of the cheap refined grains the high fructose corn syrups and the you know artificial sweeteners and sugars that are abundant in the diet so those would be my like trio of good health books but definitely deep nutrition if you're looking for just the one the second book I'm going to talk about today is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. This is an incredibly powerful book. I've read it numerous times. And don't be discouraged from the title because it's called Man's Search for Meaning, thinking that this is just a book for men. It is not. It's a book for humans. 
And Viktor Frankl was captured during World War II by the Nazis and put in a prisoner of war camp. And the book is kind of split into two. It, the first half or three quarters of the book is that harrowing tale of what that was like, a human recounting what it was like to be put in those places, to be starved, to be working out in the cold, to have frostbitten toes and leaking boots and to be beaten and to be hungry and demoralized and living every single day with the threat or the open loop of, will I make it to tomorrow? And it's an incredibly inspiring story because it's a tale of overcoming. But the reason it's so impactful is whilst Viktor Frankl was in these prisoner of war camps, he was analyzing, if you will. The guy's a psychologist. The last half of the book is all about his psychological approach to life, uh, logotherapy. But he started to ask the question, why are some people making it and why are some not making it? Because we're all in the same boat. We're all starving. We're all only getting by on a crusty bread roll that's stale for the next three days and breaking our backs out in the fields, etc. And some people were seemingly giving up and others were finding something to keep them going in that moment. And his conclusion essentially is meaning and how important it is to have meaning in your life because it curtails on the quote that a man with a strong enough why can endure anyhow. And that when you have that, it's enough sometimes to keep you desperately clinging on, hoping and praying and keeping that meaning so you can stay strong enough to find the strength to go another day, to not give up on life. And as he recounts this story, you'll see that there's an enormous amount of resolve, insight, wisdom, and also compassion. What was really astonishing to me was his compassion that he felt towards the officers in the prison camp too. Uh, of, of, you know, they were in a really tricky position too. And this book just hits so hard because it's not that long ago, you know, roughly a hundred years ago in our evolution. And people just like you and I went through this. There's still some people alive today that went through this. And to relive it through his lens and then to hear his insights is an incredibly inspiring story that gives you a lot of perspective. And I think perspective is a very valuable tool. So one of the quotes from that book, of which there are many, but something that really stands out for me, is that everything can be taken from a person, but the one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And what Victor was saying in that book is, you can have everything stripped of you, your dignity, your clothes, you can be abused, you can be beaten, you can be stabbed to death, but what nobody can take away from you is the power of your mind and how you choose to move through that, how you choose to still find meaning in that. And another point that he highlights beautifully in that book that has become a huge part of my life is the gap, he calls it, the, the, the gap that most people don't know even exists which is a gap that does exist if you become aware of it between stimulus and response. Most people are stimulus react and reactions are often emotional and not well thought out. But Viktor Frankl highlights that there is a stimulus that happens, something out there. And then there's a space which you can own. You can think about how do I want to respond to this? What is the story I'm telling right now? How do I want to choose to show up? Where can I still find meaning despite the difficulty in this? And it's a really profound book. And I think everybody could really uh, benefit from reading that one. So that's Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. The next book I want to talk about is potentially the most crazy, eye-opening and powerful book ever written, which is Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. And the reason this book is so bloody interesting is because it was never meant for publication. This was essentially a dear diary account from Marcus Aurelius, who was the most powerful man in the world as the emperor of Rome, where he was writing letters to himself and pontificating on what it means to be a good leader, to be a good human, to be a good man, to be for the people. And I will say that stoicism for some reason has become very only embedded in you know, the, the male psyche and, and men's work and culture. And for some reason, it seems like the popular narrative is that 
stoicism isn't for women. And I couldn't disagree with that further because I think maybe we've just got a misunderstanding of what stoicism is. I think that a lot of people assume because it's been lumped in so much with you know, the the disconnected or immature masculine, if you will, that stoicism is just being this rock-like figure who feels nothing and just gets stuff done. But stoicism is actually the art of really developing a relationship with one's internal state and emotions, but not being owned by them, not being ruled by them. And that to me is not an issue of men or women. That's an issue of being a human. If you are ruled by your emotions, you are not stable force in the world. You can't act right because your emotions aren't necessarily logical. They're often illogical. They're often reactive and not responsive. So to be a, a person that can have this deep level of inquiry, a relationship to emotions, what the feeling, what's going on, and simultaneously the authority over one state to choose to decide is an incredibly valuable tool. And Marcus Aurelius is probably the best blend of integrity that I've ever written. I've ever um, read about because he's really got the head and the thinking, but he's got a lot of heart too. He's really connected to people, to himself, to the mystery. And he found himself in the position of ruling an empire as the most powerful man in the world. And it's so human, you know, it's so human this book because here you have this guy who you think should have it all figured out, yet he's arguing with himself in the morning of how to get out of bed. And one of the quotes is, at dawn, when you have trouble getting out of bed, Ask yourself, tell yourself, I have to go to work as a human being. What do I have to complain of? If I'm going to do what I was born for, the things I was brought into this world to do, or is this what I was created for, to huddle under the blankets and stay warm? This is the most powerful man in the world having an argument and writing it down about whether he should proverbially hit snooze and stay under the blankets and stay warm, or get up and do what is necessary. You see that this is the same bad trip for all of us. It's the same battle for all of us, even the emperors, even the kings and the queens. And Marcus Aurelius just in that book, Meditations, of which there are a few translations, but all of them are good. I think as potentially page for page, the most wisdom of any book I've ever read. You know, I've read mine probably five times at this point, marked up all the pages. And every time you reread it, similar to what I started with, you're not the same person. The book kind of morphs into your life at that time and there's a new lesson there. And I will add one more quote from Marcus Aurelius before we move on. Choose not to be harmed and you won't feel harmed. Don't feel harmed and you haven't been. And I think this just points to the power again of the mastery over what Viktor Frankl was saying, the last of the human freedoms, this ability to choose. Choose not to be harmed and you won't feel harmed. Don't feel harmed and you haven't been. There's an enormous amount of power in the stoic philosophy of mastery over mind. Not abdicating, not spiritual bypass, just relationships and choice, empowered free will. Next up is a book that many of you might be familiar with if you've been into the self-development world because it's a very popular little book, but it's popular for a reason. And that book is The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. The Four Agreements is um, number one, be impeccable with your word. Number two, don't take things personally. Number three, don't make assumptions. And number four, always do your best. This book is another book that I've reread many, many times. When my one-on-one -on -one clients sign up for me in the welcome package, I send them this book because it's it's digestible, it's powerful, it's short enough that they can read you know, a chapter within 10 to 15 minutes. And there's wisdom in here for everybody because it's fundamentally the challenge of being a human. So be impeccable with your word. To quote Don Miguel Ruiz, speak with integrity. Say only what you mean. Avoid using your words to speak against yourself or to gossip about others. Use the power of your word in the direction of truth and love. There it is, folks. Your words have power. Your words have meaning. I've said in the podcast on the past year, your words have an energy about them. You know, it's almost like we're casting spells when we're saying words and the way in which you choose to talk about the world will dictate the way in which you see the world. So be impeccable with your word. Less of this gossip, less of this complaining, more of this truth, integrity, love, honor, uplifting people. I promise you, if you change your language about the word, if you're impeccable with your word, the world which you live in and see will change. Number two, don't take anything personally. Whatever happens around you, don't take it personally. Nothing other people do is because of you. 
It's because of themselves. This is a hard one to practice. It's great in theory. I think we get it a lot of the time. It's not really about us, right? What other people do and say, it's, it's their stuff. But because we're the recipient of it, we often take it personally. But there's an enormous amount of freedom that comes when we can practice not taking things personally. When someone is mean to you out of the blue for no reason, it's not about you. If you internalize it, and to bring in the last quote from Marcus, if you feel harmed by that because you took it personally, then you are harmed by that. But if you see it for what it is, that this person is probably just having a rotten day and hurt people hurt people, and that's what that is. And instead of feeling wounded by that, be like, I can't believe they did that. That's so mean to me. Why me? Poor me. Of just maybe flipping that, being impeccable with your words, sending that person a little love in that moment then you can walk away better for it and they can walk away better for it. These echoes of pain that come through people can stop with you. You can choose to take that, dissolve it. Or you can choose to be triggered by that and now you take their echo and you go echo it onto somebody else and they go echo it onto somebody else and on and on it goes just bouncing around the universe, echoing pain. Can you be the kind of person that doesn't take it personally, that just holds that space, is impeccable with your word? And moving on to the next point, not making assumptions. Don't make assumptions is the third of the four agreements. Find the courage to ask questions and to express what you really want. Communicate with others as clearly as you can to avoid misunderstandings, sadness, and drama. Okay, again, not terribly groundbreaking. We get that, right? Communicate clearly. Express your needs. Communicate with others as honestly as you can. These are fundamental truths. The reason it's hard is because most people have never been taught how to do this. The assumption is we should all just know how to be great communicators, but our schools didn't teach us that. So unless we go about learning this, which I'll have a book for you in a second, you are going to get stuck. But you must do this because otherwise you will make assumptions. And assumptions lead to attachments and attachment is the root of all suffering because you assume that somebody will do something, then you are attached to the idea that it should look this way. And then when it doesn't go this way, you suffer not necessarily because of what happened, but because you had an assumption and attachment to the way you think it should have happened. Now you are in resistance to the truth. So assumptions are really sticky business and you have to do your best to not make assumptions because they just get you in trouble. And last but not least of the four agreements, always do your best. Just do your best. In any circumstance in life, it doesn't matter if, you're, if you are sick or tired. If you always do your best, there is no way you can judge yourself. And if you don't judge yourself, there is no way you are going to suffer from the guilt, blame, and self-punishment. By always doing your best, you will break a big spell that you have been under. Again, classic wisdom. Most of your parents probably tell you when you was growing up, it doesn't matter what grade you got as long as you tried your best. It doesn't matter about the outcome as long as you tried your best. Winning isn't always about what the scorecard says. Like, if you truly can say you left it all on the field, if you truly can say you gave everything that you had and you truly did your best, then you won, regardless of what the outcome dictates. Like that's winning. It's, it's all about that. It's about doing your best. And the harsh truth is for most of us, and we know this, myself included, most of the time we're not doing our best. We might be doing 70% of our best consistently, and that's a damn sight better than 25% of our best. But how can we do our best? Because in my experience, when we truly do our best, when we go all in, we give everything we've got to the process, then magic happens but it's hard, right? So we've got to remind ourselves of this a lot. Just be honest with ourselves, a little refraction at, at this point, like what am I doing and am I doing my best? And if the answer is no, then do your best because that's going to minimize the regret that you might feel in the future where you look back on the thing that didn't work or failed and you say, well, I didn't really do my best, did I? I have to live with that. The only way I can safeguard against that is to truly be okay with the result and the outcome because I can look myself in the mirror and say, whatever, because I did my best and that's all that matters. I said we would get into communication because we haven't really been taught how this in my book, pun intended, should be mandatory reading for anybody that cares about communication, which by the way, you should all care about communication in your romantic relationships. 
if you are a parent or want to be a parent one day, if you are navigating business and deals and trying to go for promotions, if you are an entrepreneur, like communication is massive. Nonviolent Communication by Marshall Rosenberg is a book that was quite literally life-changing for me because it taught me for the first time how to communicate. And when when the book is titled Nonviolent Communication, we have to understand that the thesis of this book by Marshall Rosenberg, who's a psychologist, is that the way in which we are communicating so often in the world is violently. And that's not necessarily because we're out there lashing people with our words and being mean, but in the sense that we communicate often in a very disconnected and selfish way that alienates other people and is in, and, and is inherently selfish, which doesn't allow us to meet our needs and meet their needs at the same time. And this nonviolent communication skill, which is laid out and mapped out in the book, the what, the why, and the how, is how you can have constructive conversations in your life that simultaneously allow you to get what you want and the other person to get what they want without conflict and without the drama. One of the biggest mistakes that Marshall Rosenberg highlights in the book is that we often diagnose and judge what another person is doing, similar again to making assumptions. And instead of diagnosing and judging, we should be observing and clarifying what is really going on because all humans are acting in ways to get their needs met. I've talked about the six human needs on podcasts in the past. This is what we're all doing. And even though you might not agree with somebody's mode or method of getting their needs met, you cannot argue with the core principle that this is what humans do. This is what you do. It's what we all do. We're trying to get our needs met, hopefully in an aligned way. And once you understand that about the person, you can slightly shift your communication style to understand what needs are you are not getting met. And that's why you feel a certain way, like frustrated or anxious, but also consider that for the other person that you are talking to as well. So again, relationships, this is a game changer. Life, this is a game changer. I think that if you generally want to be a good communicator, and I can't see an argument for why you wouldn't want to be a good communicator, that nonviolent communication is a mandatory read. Next up is my boy, Eckhart Tolle, A New Earth. I could have gone pretty cliche with The Power of Now, but I think The Power of Now is a book that you can get pretty quickly. And A New Earth brings in the principles of The Power of Now and talks about what we do with that to create a new earth, a new earth in which we get to live for ourselves and for our collectives. And The Power of Now is essentially an expose on the realization that the mind is constantly living in an imaginary future or ruminating on a past, a time forgotten, and is very, very uh, not equipped often to live in the only moment that we actually do have, which is the now, the present moment, the eternal isness of life. Be here now. Everything that's ever happened to you, everything that will ever happen to you is now. When you think about things that have happened to you, they happen to you now as a vision, as a memory. When you worry about the future, you do that in the now. When that future event that you're worrying about arrives, it arrives in the now. Tomorrow becomes the now. Everything is the now. And if you can live there, there's a sense of equanimity and peace that washes over a person because anxiety doesn't really coexist with presence. Regret doesn't really exist with presence. When you feel those things, you're not in the now. You're up in the head again. So that's the, you know, bro version of the synopsis of the power of now. But a new earth is what do we do with that, right? When we have this realization, how do we use it? How do we alchemize it? How do we create a new earth? And I think the timing of this book is powerful because I feel like we are entering into a new earth in many ways. I feel like certain systems are decaying and they're destructive. And as they go down, they're going down swinging with a fight. But I fundamentally believe that this uprising of more aware, awake, healthy, conscious people that want to see the world that we know is possible if we really are in this together as a collective, as a community, taking our personal responsibilities and doing what is necessary, that the world is the greatest playground imaginable, that heaven truly is on earth and therefore hell is too. And we choose which one we get to live in. And this book does an incredible job of that. So a quote from this book is, 
Life will give you whatever experience is most helpful for the evolution of your consciousness now. How do you know this is the experience you need? Because this is the experience you are having at this moment. What a cool frame that this thing that you're going through right now, even if it's really hard, is the thing that is most beneficial for the evolution of your consciousness. That it's not happening to you, that it's happening for you that this is the teacher and that on the other side of this is a better version of you. That what if this bad thing is actually good training? And what if going through it now is a good thing because it's better preparing you for a new earth in the future, more resilient, more well put together, more open, more honest, using the world and all of its experiences as a vehicle for your transformation is something that I really took from Eckhart, something that I use in my life daily, because now everything, every interaction, every moment, every bit of resistance, everything that doesn't go my way and everything that goes my way is a teacher and I get to use it. And what a wonderful gift that is. Next up is a book by Ramdas called Polishing the Mirror. And this is one of my favorite, I guess you would call it a spiritual book because he talks about a lot of topics and the way Ramdas does it is very human to me. Ramdas is not a guru. He's not some wise monk that sits on top of the hill and blesses people with his wisdom. He's a human just like you and I. And the way he tells the stories and the lessons of life of what it's like to be a human is very relatable. It's very accessible, but it's also very wise and it's very true and it just resonates deeply. And this idea the Polishing the Mirror, the title of the book, is a philosophy that I've grasped onto quite um, you know, intensely because I think that the world is a mirror. I think that what we see out there is a reflection of what is really going on in internally. It's often said that we don't see the world or people as it is or as they are, but as we are. And that the real work of life is then to polish the mirror to do that work, to think about life a little bit differently, to acknowledge what it means to be a human, to understand that everybody's going through this like you are too, and we're all just doing our best, but maybe we can do better if we have more awareness, more tools, more connection to our hearts, less of that ego, less of that head. A quote from Ramdas. When somebody provokes your anger, the only reason you get angry is because you're holding on to how you think something is supposed to be. You are denying how it is. Then you see it's the expectations of your own mind that are creating your own hell. When you get frustrated because something isn't the way you thought it to be, examine the way you thought, not just the thing that frustrates you. You'll see that a lot of your emotional suffering is created by your models of how you think the universe should be and your inability to allow it to be as it is. Resistance 101. When you get stuck playing that game, your inability to allow things to be as they are, you are arguing with reality. And that's a losing game that you lose every single time. And I don't know about you, but I don't think anybody likes being a loser. So the goal here is acceptance. There's the lesson in that statement. How can you accept what is, right? What you're really frustrated about is not necessarily what anybody did or the weather or the traffic. It's your inability to allow it to be as it is because that's the truth. This is what's happening. The more you get stuck in your head trying to throw a tantrum about it, the more you will suffer. It's a really cool book. I think you'll enjoy it a lot. It spans a lot of topics of life and how to die and prepare for death graciously and just the stickiness and the ickiness of being a human. Next up is probably my my favorite, more recent book. I've read this book two or three times at this point. Absolutely love it. It's called The Lion Tracker's Guide to Life by Boyd Varty. The reason this is such a cool book is this guy is a legit lion tracker. It's a South African bushveld hunter who tracks lions, who then became something of a modern mystic, something of a teacher, a guide, a, a space holder, and Again, page for page, this book's storytelling and wisdom is unbelievable. It's, it's next level. And it's really, if you are called to the wild self, if you are really drawn by this ancestral pull of, of you know, the reverence and respect, the remembering, then you will adore this book. 
Freud says, we have forgotten that life holds a unique story for us all, a thread made up of faint signs that lead to the manifestation of something unique, what the native people called your medicine way, something that only you can give to the world. It's a powerful story. It's like the law of Dharma, which is there is something that you can do and only you can do it better than anybody else in the world could ever do it because it requires you, your particular gifts, your particular skills, your particular set of circumstances, trials and tribulations. And that the track that you find is where you will find that truth and that we're constantly tracking that thing. And our lion in life is, is that thing, the purpose, the meaning, the truth, the wisdom. And he, he has a, a wonderful idea of the path of not here. And this was, a, this was a, 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 an eye-opening moment for me. When we take what we often think is the wrong path because it leads us astray, we say, what a waste of time. You know, I was on the wrong path. And his re reframe is that there's no wrong paths. There's just the path of not here. And when you realize that you're on the path of not here, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a good thing because you realize that now you have to find the next first track on the path of something directionally correct in alignment with the next thing, the next track, the next path that will take you closer to that truth. So go out and track, go out and track. Got a double header for you here because Ryan Holiday is currently working on four books around the stoic values. Uh, discipline, courage, temperance, and I'm forgetting the fourth one because it's not been published yet. But both of these books are phenomenal. I've read a lot of Ryan Holiday's work. I think this is potentially some of his best work. And what's really cool about Ryan Holiday's stuff is that he's not necessarily writing like his ideas, stream of consciousness style. He's telling stories of some of the brightest minds and the the greatest trials and tribulations, the overcoming, all of that through a stoic philosophy kind of lens. And these two books that I read last year were incredible. Number one is Courage is Calling. And the second in the Virtues book is Discipline is Destiny. You guys are probably sick of hearing me bang on about discipline at this point, but I really do think that discipline is destiny, that discipline holds the key to you becoming who you could be. And one of the quotes is around discipline. To procrastinate is to be entitled. It is arrogant. It assumes there will be a later. And it assumes that you'll have the discipline to get to it later, despite not having the discipline now. Like this book is a smack in the chops from the heart. Like it's the harsh truths that a lot of us need because most of us need more discipline in our lives and not just the not just like the hyper discipline like get after it jocko 4am every day like go good but the discipline of character the discipline of mind the discipline to be courageous that's the other virtue without the courage to do any of this stuff you won't do it you need to be courageous enough to become that person. So this, this, this book, this four series of books is incredibly powerful. The third and the fourth aren't released yet, but I'm trending on the last two and saying that they are going to be really cool and very powerful. They're short, the chapters are kind of short and they're, they're hard hitting and there's a lot to study in there. So Courage is Calling and Discipline is Destiny by Ryan Holiday. We're almost there, fam. Well, you wanted some good books, so I'm giving them to you. Loving What Is, Byron Katie. This book was so impactful for me because it changed the way in which I see the mental chatter, the stories, the world, and it was profoundly impactful to my coaching business. This is a fundamental thing that changed the way I coach people now. So the idea in this book laid out by Byron Katie is that these four questions will change your life. One, this is all about the story that we're telling. It's all about the thoughts that we're having right now, the narratives that we've adopted, the identities that we believe to be true. The first question is, is it true? The thought that I'm having right now, is it true? The second question, can I absolutely know that it's true? The next question is, what happens when I believe the thought? What happens when I believe that it's true? physically, emotionally, spiritually, whatever, what happens? And the fourth question, 
what becomes available to me in the absence of that thought? What becomes available to me without that belief? Or the turnaround, what becomes available to me if I believed a different story? Now, a practical example of that, so you can kind of grasp this, and the reason it's so powerful, is you start to realize that we are storytelling creatures. We are meaning-making creatures, and the way we find that meaning is to tell stories about things. And everybody tells stories. We're telling stories all the time. One that's probably applicable to most people in some way, shape, or form is a story of not enoughness, is a story of like, I'm not good enough, or something like that. I'm not lovable. I'm too ugly, I'm too old, I'm too fat, whatever it is. Like I'm fundamentally not good enough. So you could take yourself through this exercise and you can take other people through it. Okay, the statement, the story is I'm not good enough. Is that true? Yes, it's true. I'm not good enough. I'm, 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 I'm not, not a good person. Okay, can you absolutely know that it's true? Well, if, if, if I cut you open and went looking for a manufacturing label that said fundamentally steep, where is this manufacturing label that you came into that says you are not good enough? Will I find it? No, I won't find it. So I can't actually know without a shadow of a doubt that that is true. But now I get to see the results of what happens when I believe the story that I'm not good enough. What happens when you believe the story I'm not good enough? Well, I shrink myself. I have guilt and shame. Maybe I'm angry at the world. I'm angry at myself. I play small, okay? What happens in the absence of that story? Like if you can just play a game right now with your mind, play the game of poof, delete that story, it's gone. All right, well, <clears throat> there's some spaciousness there now. There's, a, there's less pressure. There is more compassion and acceptance. And we get to play the turnaround. Like tell the opposite story, try it on, try the onesie of the opposite story, see how that feels. So the opposite of I'm not good enough would be, oh, well, I'm good enough. Okay, well, what happens when you believe the story, I'm good enough? I should, I'm good enough, I, I'm worthy. I should go for what it is that I want. I should speak my truth. I should feel okay with taking up space. I'm proud of myself, I'm capable. And now you get to see that just by the power of the story that we're telling ourselves in our mind, most of the time unconsciously, and this is why it's a trap, it dictates our outcomes. We should have like an internal fact checker, a bullshit meter that goes ding, 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 ding. You're telling a lie. You're telling a story. And the only reason you believe it to be real is because you believe it to be real. But we don't. It slips through the safety net. Therefore, we believe the story that we're not good enough, we're too dumb, we're too old, we're too, we're not, we, we can't learn new skills. And then it proves itself true because we have the beautiful aspect of ourselves where we love to be right, the self-righteousness. So I have a confirmation bias for my own limiting beliefs, all based on a story, all only believed because I believe it. I'm not good enough. Great. Let me go and live a life that proves to me every step of the way that I'm not good enough. I will discount all of the evidence to the contrary, and I will guarantee that I will never feel good enough because that is my story. And you can dismantle that story by asking those four questions and walking through and finding deeper and deeper and deeper layers of this human onion. And it is an incredibly profound thing to take yourself through. So Byron Katie says, there is only one thing that is harder than accepting the truth, and that is not accepting the truth. The truth here, is that a lot of the stories you're telling about yourself and the limits about yourself are not true. And that the results are based on a lie that you've been telling yourself. But the only thing that's harder than accepting that uncomfortable truth, because when you accept that uncomfortable truth, you unfortunately have to reconcile that you did this to you. You did this with the stories, is not accepting it. Because not accepting it means that tomorrow will look like today and yesterday, and time is just gonna magnify you playing this story out until the day you die, living with these limits, most of which are self-imposed, if not all of which are self-imposed. So that is Loving What Is by Byron Katie. And we're gonna round out this list with number 10 and a productivity book for you productive-minded folks, of which there are many productivity books, but this is probably my favorite, which is Essentialism by... I forgot to put the author's name, but I think it's Greg McEwan. So we'll, we'll fact check that. You guys can fact check me in the comments, but essentialism, you Google it, you'll find it. it's a pretty new book. This book is all about the art of less but better. It's, a, it's about saying no more. Like we live in a culture 
where we say yes to pretty much everything. We have no boundaries. We say yes to too many things appearing on our calendar. We say yes to too many events, too many social situations. And the art of saying no, the art of cultivating that won't power ensures that you can be a person that then gets to say a heck yeah to the things that really matter. And our culture sold us this myth and this lie that we should just say yes, it makes us a nice and kind person, it makes us productive, but actually it's bleeding from our productivity because we're saying yes to too much. It's making us not necessarily a nice person, but a weak person. And Greg states the case, actually is producers. Is Greg the title? What, what, what have we got? Yeah, Greg, we got it, we got it. Yeah. <laughs> and Greg makes the case in this book that you will actually be a better person, a more productive person, a more likable person if you learn to say no. And one of my favorite ideas from this book is this idea of closing loops. And basically put, imagine I'm looking at this computer in front of me right now and I have 15 tabs open in my browser and my computer starts to get slow and I'm looking for the thing that I wanna to get to but it's buried in these 15 tabs and it's overwhelming and I get that little rainbow spinning wheel of death on my computer and nothing's working because the RAM can't keep up with the demands. And your brain kind of has a similar thing. There's a ceiling of output, there's a capacity, there's a, there's a RAM and you are maxing it out every single day because all of these unfinished businesses, everything that you've said yes to is sucking some of your energy. They become open loops. And even when you're not consciously thinking about them, you're bleeding energy. You're losing a little bit of life force. They're detracting away from your ability to really focus on the task at hand. So you must be ruthless in closing those loops. List all the open loops down. What are you bleeding energy into? It might be something silly and you're putting it off because it's silly, but because you put it off for the next two weeks and you're waiting for a deadline that it's impacting you on a day-to-day -day basis now. When you know that with 10 minutes you could close this loop instead of waiting two minutes and having this live in the back of your mind, taking up mental resources, sometimes you need to control, alt, delete, close down the computer, clear everything off and start again. And closing loops is a way in which you can do that. So that is almost it because I do have to add a few bonus books here because all of those books were in the realm of either health or self-development, spirituality, etc. And you'll notice there was no novels in there. So I'm going to give you a little nod to some of my favorite novels now because I did say at the beginning that you should read what you love until you love to read. And one of the best ways you can do that is learn to love to read by picking up a good novel. Look, the truth of it is not all of us are going to be excited about reading books about productivity or learning about advanced you know, pathways around metabolism. Some of you might be. Good job, nerds. But if you want to learn to love to read, then you've got to read what you love. And some of these novels are some of my favorites. So Number one, I could have gone very cliche here, but I feel like everybody talks about The Alchemist. It's unofficially, officially on this list. Like it's an amazing book, but a book that kind of parallels with a, another good story uh, is The Power of One. The Power of One by Bryce is the author. Bryce Courtney, I think is how you pronounce it. It follows a character of a small child that's raised in South Africa called Pique. And PK's mother has a mental breakdown when he's very young and he's raised by a wet nurse and he ends up uh, in a private school, a private school by chance that he shouldn't be in. He gets in um, by a stroke of luck, but he's, he's poor. The boys bully him and they pick on him. He develops a, a bedwetting habit, which they tear him apart for. And he's a small boy for his age. And it's this kind of downtrodden figure every step of the way until he meets his mentor, until he meets this kind of wise sage, if you will, who is a boxing coach who teaches him the power of regulating his mind. He teaches him about a safe place that he can go to in his mind, this waterfall where he can find some clarity and this peace. And he also teaches him how to box. And it follows this journey of this disaffected young man all the way through, you know, traveling around South Africa and fighting often much bigger opponents, the story of overcoming the classic David and Goliath thing. And maybe it resonates with me so deeply because of the fighter in me and how that, you know, is, is such a powerful story. But The Power of One is an incredible novel. It'll take you on a right roller coaster of emotions from joy to heartbreak. It'll have you crying in some points. And it's just a feel good novel. I absolutely love it. The Overstory by Richard Powers is the next novel that I think is just phenomenal. This is a relatively new book. I think it's only about four years old. And it's a story about nine people's lives who are told that their lives are told separately in the book. But the one interweaving theme 
is about trees and how trees connect all these people's lives. And it sounds a little bit like a strange book, but the way in which you learn about trees and some of the impacts of, you know, ecological and deforestation and also the wisdom of trees and the kinds of trees and how the magnificent storytelling just brings you on a journey. But there's this central theme of the wisdom of nature, the wisdom of trees, the protection that we should be having of our trees is really, really cool. Again, one for my nature lovers, I think you'll enjoy that a lot. The most recent novel that I read, it's not a new book, but it's the one that I read most recently that had me going through all the fields is Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield, which is a work of historical, um, you know, fiction and storytelling about the battle at Thermopylae, um, the gates of hell, the 300 as the movie would depict it. Um, and it's just an incredible tale of overcoming again. It's definitely got a, a good warrior spirit in it. It's definitely got good code of conducts and values and ethos built into it. And I remember actually I was coming out to Austin to fill the film the podcast and I was about in the last 20 pages of this book and I was crying like a baby on the plane. And to have a book that can actually bring you to tears because the storytelling is that magnificent is just pretty profound. And it's a heck of a story. Um, one of my favorite quotes in there that just shows how badass the Spartans were is Leonidas meets with his rival in the middle of the field before they're about to go into battle. And he's taunting, the, the, the other person is taunting Leonidas, basically saying, we're going to slaughter you guys. We have a hundred times more men. Our arrows are going to be so many that they will block out the sun. And Leonidas just says, then we will fight in the shade. It's pretty gangster. So that's uh, Gates of Fire. A nod to, of course, the dystopian fantasy future novels that are coming somewhat to reality. We have 1984 by George Orwell. And we have its counterpart, The Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. I would read both of these novels because they're both incredible stories, but they point at something that maybe is going on in culture a little bit. Uh, the 1984 view of the world is information is censored. People are controlled and they are kind of persuaded into compliance. They're fed a certain diet, they're given a certain you know medication and they are you know withheld from the truth. And Huxley's view of a brave new world is a little bit different in terms of the information isn't necessarily censored as much as it's attacked this new old world, what they call the savages, the way they used to live, which in this dystopian future novel is essentially the way humans have lived for a long time, like in communities connected to nature, that they are the savages, they are the heathens, that all of this old way of being is outdated and that we should be moving to a model of basically breeding children in factories and taking our medications. So there's a lot of parallels to weird things that are going on in culture right now. And it's a little bit of an eye opener. And certainly last but not least from the same author is Island by Aldous Huxley. It might be my personal favorite novel of all time. It's uh, about a journalist that gets stranded on a deserted island and he finds this island where people are living just a wonderful life um, of, it, it dives into things like education and the way in which we raise food and livestock. There's, it's a story. It's an incredible story that, that's culminating in this event that these the, the, this people's land is eventually gonna be taken by you know, the, the, the forces that want to take it for the resources, you know, for the waters, for the trees. But it's a really empowering story. So they would be some of my top recommendations for some novels too. So there you go. You've got a bunch of resources now. I'm sure you've been told by many other people about many great books, and they're just some of them. But they are the ones that have had a profound impact on my life. They've changed the way in which I understand things at a mechanical level, like metabolism. They've changed the way I see things from a philosophical lens, like meditations with Marcus Aurelius. They've helped me in, on my spiritual journey to connect more to my heart, like Ramdas and A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. And I think reading is something, if you're not doing much of it right now, is gonna be really something that is a habit that gives you a lot of compound and interest for self-improvement, for happiness, for joy. So go out there, get some bucks. My call to action to wrap up this podcast is I want to hear from you. Like where are you listening to this right now? YouTube, Spotify, whatever. Put your favorite book in the comments and why. 
would love to know what your favorite book is and why. I'd love to see if there's any, you know, um, you know, resonance with my list today. Um, but I'm always looking for good books. So make sure you include that why piece too, because I'll be reading those comments and I want to do that. And if you're listening on a podcast, you know, tag us, share us, uh, screenshot this, put it on your Instagram, show us your favorite books. Let us know what your big takeaway from this was. Share it with your friends, share it with the world. Thank you for joining us. We don't have any callers today because this is a bit of a weird topic to have questions on and we want to keep the questions kind of on point with today's topic. So we figured we'd just wrap it up, give you some good books, give you some good stuff to chew on and some good stuff to go read. So there you are. You have your homework. Let us know what your favorite book is and why. If you don't have a favorite book, pull one from this list and dig into it and get some reading. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.